Thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout. My name is Gregory Hargreaves, Program Officer in the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. Now, you know, during these History Hangouts, we like to introduce you to some of the great research being done by folks using the historical collections in the Hagley Library, especially by scholars who have received support in the form of research grants and fellowships from the Hagley Center. One such scholar is joining me today, Dr. Sven Kuba, is our current Hagley NEH postdoctoral fellow, and we'll be discussing his book project titled Born in the USA, Made in the GDR, How Western Popular Music Shaped a Communist Record Market. Sven, thanks for joining me today. Glad to be here. Hello, Greg. Well, that's great. Uh, why don't we sort of paint with broad strokes initially here? Why don't you introduce us to your book project? What is it you're researching and writing about? So the broadest level, my research uh, investigates trends at the nexus of uh, technological, economic, and cultural developments. And more specifically, the book uh, is examining the dissemination of music, of popular music, in the Cold War era. It's a bit motivated by my own experience, so I'm the very last representative, or I'm, I'm one of the very last representatives of, uh, of the Eastern Bloc. And uh, as a young child, even, I had a, a certain fascination for Western culture that circulated in that society and always, always seemed foreign and alien and sometimes also a bit out of place. And when I went to university, I have a, a cultural studies background. I read these standard um, Western narratives on how popular music or popular culture more generally uh, served as a weapon in cultural cold warfare and was utilized to essentially uh, undermine the loyalty of citizens uh, in Eastern Bloc countries to their governments. And those studies based on the sources that they usually use, which are um, files created by Western institutions that are available in public archives, um, have a tendency to attribute uh, a, the best part of agency or like sometimes exclusive agency to Western actors. And when I read those narratives, I thought they lacked a little bit of nuance because it's true that these Western initiatives, cultural diplomacy, uh, disseminated culture eastwards, but um, it was not the only process that was taking place. So what I decided then uh, at the PhD level for the, for the dissertation was to look into how cultural commerce between cultural industries in communist countries and in capitalist countries also served as a, as a dissemination mechanism for popular culture and transported uh, music, films, television programs into, uh, into the Eastern Bloc. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and the book uh, is uh, focusing on the experience of the, uh, of the German Democratic Republic, which was the, the westernmost outpost of the Eastern Bloc, uh, more exposed than any other Eastern Bloc country to Western cultural production. And uh, the study essentially traces the connection between the state-owned and state-run uh, music slash record monopolist of, the, of East Germany and uh, record companies across the Western hemisphere um, that sort of like teamed up and the, and the outcome, the main consequence was a Westernization uh, of, the, uh, of the East German music market long before uh, cultural cold warfare basically concluded. Um, hmm. 
if you if you like, I can give you like a like a, like a brief rundown of what the narrative encompasses, and then we can uh, we can follow up on any aspect that you find most interesting. Yeah, yeah, that sounds great. So the uh, it's got like uh, technological, economic, and cultural aspects. The um, uh, it begins the, the the historical narrative begins uh, immediately after the after the um, uh, in the in the early post-war era when uh, East Germany decides it needs a record company, it needs a music industry to basically have some influence over what people like and, and, and what they what kind of culture they consume and what, what they listen mm. to. So they decide that they need such a recording industry, but their problem is that the Eastern Bloc countries, the Eastern Bloc economies and developers are not able uh, to come up with the machines and the very fine materials that recording industries need to do what they do. Mm. So essentially, that record company, uh, especially after the Berlin Wall goes up in 61 and the country is basically sealed off from, uh, from Western stores, that company is serving a market of like 16, 18 million people, um, but it doesn't really have the technology to, uh, to go about business. So they procure all machines, all hardware, all resources from Western countries. And because uh, they buy it from the West, those things have to be paid in hard currencies. Mm. And hard currencies are like the most precious resource for all Eastern Bloc countries. Uh, the economies are weak, they need a convertible exchange uh, to subsidize even more systemic sectors of their economies. So the music industry, which is not really a systemic uh, um, uh, industry, needs to come up with a way to earn back the hard currencies that they have to spend uh, on, on machines and materials. So what they come up with is classical music. GDR happens to be a powerhouse of classical music because when the Red Army approached from the East, they uh, all those centers of like uh, musical excellence of bygone centuries ended up in the Soviet occupied zone. And the state is funding classical music like crazy because they want classical music to be a foundation of a new culture that's sort of like an opposition to, to Western pop culture. So the record industry, the, the, the music monopolist becomes the commercial gatekeeper to that circuit. And they can modify recordings of, uh, of orchestras, of choirs, and they sell those recordings to uh, Western clients that are basically looking for something exotic that is that has like great quality, but is also very affordable because of that imbalance in the, in the, in the, in the currencies. So they do that, they, they become basically an export-oriented monopolist that are producing classical music for Western buyers. And that creates a vacuum in, uh, in, the, uh, in the domestic market, obviously, because like Western countries, uh, Eastern, East, Eastern Bloc countries have baby boomers and the baby boomers, they don't wanna to listen to Beethoven, they want their Beatles. So, um, so what, they, what they do then is uh, they, from the, from the mid 60s onwards, they very carefully, but then more and more uh, utilize those business relations with Western capitalist record companies to also import music. And the music they import is popular music that domestic buyers flock to the store to, to, to buy. And that's how they basically grow and expand the domestic market. They become the most profitable producer of culture in the, in the GDR. Uh, in the, in, the, in the 1980s, they, because the state is the owner, they transfer like profits of up to 200 million in, in domestic currency to the state every year. And so the state is not quite happy about what's going on. It's like the, they, they, they observe those, the westernization of the market 
But on the other hand, the state more and more uh, is in financial troubles. So they, they form the habit of, uh, of counting the cash and looking the other way. That's mm -hmm. basically the, the historical narrative that starts in the immediate post-war era and then traces that westernization until uh, the fall of the Iron Curtain. Now, what makes music such a valuable case study for you? Obviously, there's cultural production happening in a bunch of different media. Uh, you just mentioned perhaps per what sounds like it may be key, the fact that this became the most profitable culture industry for the GDR. Is that a part of why you selected this case? It's it's a part of it. So uh, I kind of, like uh, my, my faintest memories of, of childhood were actually listening to Western radio and, 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 and noticing that um, that culture from uh, from the Western Hemisphere had like other characteristics than than, uh, than the culture that disseminated domestically in the GDR. You could usually tell whether a pop song, even before somebody started to sing, whether a pop song uh, was produced in the Eastern Bloc from the, uh, in the in the West. There was a almost like a like a face difference in like sonic aesthetics. We can talk about that too if you would like. Um, but uh, essentially, music is. Uh, arguably the most pervasive form of Western youth culture. And Western youth culture drove this because um, it is a, is a, they were new cultural forms that documented how distinct the life experience of baby boomers was in comparison with previous generations. And that was not so much different in the Eastern Bloc. Um, so, so music connected, especially young people. Music uh, gave young people in, in both hemispheres the, uh, the idea that they somehow shared something, had something in common, even though they lived in very different worlds. And, um, and they also, like music is a medium that does not necessarily need language to connect people. Uh, so if you go to a film, the film has to be dubbed if it's an American film uh, in, in, in Germany. Um, same even, even to a higher extent with books, they have to be translated. Music has lyrics, but um, arguably the, the, the element that connects people right away is it's like more musical and sonic properties. Uh, and so I think music was like the most, um, the most, um, the most pervasive form of, of, of Western youth culture. And that made it uh, a very successful commodity in these Eastern blockages. It's really a fascinating story. I'd love to hear you unpack a little bit more about the difference between the sonic qualities, um, perhaps especially drawing on your own experience uh, as a youth. But uh, and so both, what are the different sounds coming out of the East and West? How, uh, how are these pop songs sounding different? Um, and perhaps does that relate back to your story about recording technology? So the... Uh... Both systems, uh, the Eastern Bloc, but also the Western Hemisphere, had like different cultural forms that reflected their different approaches to social and economic and political uh, and, and technolo uh, technological organization. Mm -hmm. And uh, one reason why that was significant in uh, in, uh, in pop music, and I actually wrote a piece that is that is forthcoming, forthcoming in an edited volume about how these properties differ in, in, in both spheres, is that musical instruments and recording technology in Western countries were very different uh, from, from the East. So the East didn't really create those technologies. They always had trouble of coming up with the, uh, with the appropriate materials to record on and the music media, but it started even earlier. It started with, um, well, one aspect also is, is more ideological. Like in the West, it's like grassroots experimentation. Uh, punk bands try something new and, and, and youths embrace it. And that's how it becomes a, a wave of excitement. 
in the Eastern Bloc, that's not really possible because the state own the states own uh, the sites of mass media production. So um, and also like every every song that is before it can be recorded needs to go and under needs to undergo a screening process. So there there is already like the the musical and uh, and genre specific criteria are different. But then the sonic aesthetics um, uh, differences in sonic aesthetics originate from. Uh, the fact that technological development in the West is decentralized. So there's a lot going on. There's like tinkerers and, and, and people who, who sort of like try something new, try to find niches in the market. That's how, for instance, uh, um, um, some musical instruments like, like drum machines in the, in, the, in the late 1970s are developed. They're like, it's like international cooperation. It is like people who try to find niches in, in, in leisure markets, which are not that much of a big thing in the Eastern Bloc. And, uh, and there is economic competition. And that, those, those things drive uh, the, the development of new machines that make sound. Mm -hmm. So in, the, in, in Eastern Bloc countries, that's not really something uh, that, is, that is going on in the same way because uh, research is kind of centralized. The state uh, decides this is where we have to place our emphasis in the next five years. And, um, there are also like leisure markets that 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 uh, private enterprise cannot cannot permeate. So um, what is happening is that when when bands and record companies want to make certain kinds of pop music, they have to buy all these facilities. Once again, they have to import those facilities from the Western Hemisphere, and that means there is a certain delay uh, in when certain sounds become audible. When 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 certain portions of the sound spectrum become available to domestic artists in those Eastern Bloc countries. And so when you hear a pop song from the early 1980s, like a Madonna uh, original will inevitably from, from 85 will inevitably sound different than, uh, than a, an East German artist trying to do something similar um, in 85 most certainly, but then maybe they only get the keyboard that they need in 88 or 89. So, so there's a, a phase difference almost in sonic extenders. That's, that's just fascinating. Now, um, I suppose one of the called morals or, or lessons of the story is that it's really difficult to centrally plan for popular culture. So, um, could you, yeah, could you perhaps um, unpack that a little bit for us? So, there's a uh, culture has almost um, is almost a different concept to um, to those Western and Eastern countries. In the in the West, um, you have like as I said, experimentation at the grassroots level, and you have powerful entertainment industries that are eager to exploit whatever new trends resonate with the public, and that's usually how uh, in the '60s and the '70s. Uh, in the 80s, new trends kind of emerge at the periphery of culture production, and they are being absorbed in this, into, this, into this main tent of mass entertainment in, in the West. And Eastern Bloc countries um, struggle with that because uh, they are, like, like culture production is more regulated and it is more monitored. There are, uh, when, when DJs, there's, there's, for instance, there's a content quota in place uh, in East Germany for for public events uh, where a certain percentage of all songs played need to be uh, need to originate from Eastern Bloc countries and only uh, another share can, can, can originate in Western countries. So DJs always have to keep a balance basically. Um, so culture is something that 
that is negotiated basically uh, between, um, between states and states authorities and the public, and they may not always have the same interests. Uh, and that is to go back to this, to this, to this, to the story of music import. That is then something that that gives um, the music import to the Eastern Bloc a, a specific dimension because the, the the pop music that they begin to import in the 1960s looks very different from the pop music that they then uh, import in the 70s and 80s. And that that expansion of the of the spectrum of styles and genres that can be tolerated that are deemed appropriate for young people in these societies has a lot to do with how the Cold War is going generally and uh, and, and 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 how 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 big the gaps in terms of technology, economy, but also other things grow um, between the Eastern camp and the Western camp. So does the geopolitical situation ramify directly upon this story? For instance, during periods of detente, uh, is there more of a flow of Western sounds and sound making technologies and techniques across uh, the Iron Curtain? There is actually, so, so there, there are two things going on. On the one hand, certain geopolitical events, certain uh, historical events in the Cold War era open doors, but then the doors, once they're open, don't really shut again. That's, that's, that's mm-hmm. what I thought very interesting. So for instance, when they begin uh, to, to really, uh, at, a, at a significant scale, to import Western recordings, they first, in the 1960s, select very carefully what is allowed in. Uh, that's the background is the Berlin Wall get, goes up in, uh, in, uh, in 61. Then there's the Prague Spring that sort of like makes, makes it very visible to state leaders that young people are dissatisfied. They are dissatisfied with cultural isolationism. Uh, some of them are dissatisfied after the Berlin Wall because two years ago they could go uh, to, the, to the store and, and buy rock and roll records and now they can't do that anymore. So the music monopolist is, is trying to, um, to sort of navigate those different interests. And they first begin uh, by importing jazz, blues, and also a small selection of, uh, of American folk music, like Bob Dylan and Pete Seeger. So, so, so at the beginning, and, and then like the, the bigger share of the, of the import repertoire in the 60s is, uh, is jazz and blues. Um, so at the beginning of the process, uh, it's either representatives of a, of a suppressed minority of suppressed minorities in the United States, or it's vocal critics of, uh, of capitalism from the superpower of capitalism of the period. So, that, so that's kind of okay. And however, like once they realize what an extraordinary demand is there for foreign records and how they could prosper off that demand, because they, they may be a communist enterprise, but they are an enterprise. They, they, they want to sell records, they want to make profits, they want to grow. So um, when in the 1970s, this new generation of like Eastern Bloc leaders comes in, that's a little less Stalinist on certain, on certain things. They don't, they, don't, they don't tell people, you gotta, you gotta restrain your desires, your material desires, you, only, you should only buy what, what, what you need, but they are more open to the idea of consumption. Mm. And so the music industry says, so what about cultural consumption? You have a generation of young people, they have now also money to spend, maybe not so much as their Western peers, but a considerable amount. We can work with that. Uh, how about we, uh, we expand the repertoire? And that's exactly what happens in the, in the 70s. The first rock record uh, they, uh, they adopt for the East German market is Jimi Hendrix. Uh, Jimi Hendrix, not an obvious choice. He, is, uh, he talks about um, things that are deeply inappropriate in, uh, in, in Eastern rock societies. He, he, likes to take drug, he likes to take drugs. He puts um, 
he puts out provocative records with provocative covers, but uh, he plays Woodstock in 69 and he presents that rendition of the American national anthem that is widely read as a, as a very vocal statement against the, the Vietnam War and that makes him acceptable. Um, there are other cases like, like, like ABBA, for instance. So mm -hmm. ABBA represent disco music. There's always something materialist and, and hedonistic about disco music and the perception of Eastern Bloc countries. So when they, when they adopt the ABBA record, they, uh, they basically take off uh, that hit single, Money, Money, Money. Uh, they'd rather not have that. So they take it off and they, they replace it with an obscure B-side and then it just works. And uh, in the eighties then, the ideological criteria uh, don't even apply because they are really trying to max out market growth. And so they adopt Madonna, Michael Jackson, Bruce Springsteen, that's where the title comes from for the project. Uh, and they are happy uh, that, that people are standing, uh, the day of the release, people are lining up uh, in front of all these stores and spending their money on What about the uh, record playing equipment? Um, are these uh, vinyl records directly importable from the West and playable on um, record players manufactured in the Eastern Bloc? Or how is that, how are people physically listening to this music? So the records are standard. Uh, the playing devices are the same. Uh, there is a big problem in, uh, in Eastern Bloc economies with regard to uh, playing equipment. Um, there is, I think, into the 1960s, there's a tremendous shortage of, uh, of, uh, of record players. So there's also natural limits for the music enterprise to grow. Uh, in the 70s, that changes a little bit because then uh, as they want to stimulate consumption, they also release cassette recorders. And, uh, and they launched music cassettes, those, those compact tape cassettes, uh, as, the, um, as the secondary medium, especially for young people. Um, but it's interesting uh, because I started by, by saying, so, so all, the, all the technology they, they, they make, uh, they, they, they need in order to make records, they have to, they have to import from Western countries. That escalates as the Cold War goes on. So for instance, when the music industry wants to introduce uh, music cassettes, they realize young people, they, they like to listen to music while they are not at home. Uh, they want to take the music where they go. So uh, they say we need music cassettes, but what do we do? We don't have the technology to do this. So in, uh, in 1973, uh, they request, uh, I think it's millions in dollars and yen to essentially import a cassette factory like Turnkey. Uh, like all the facilities, uh, they are bought and they are imported and uh, they open a new factory uh, at the outskirts of Berlin and they put it all together and then they become manufacturers of music cassettes and they have that other medium that is driving growth in, uh, in Western markets. Um, and one aspect of the research then as we go into the 1980s, or well, one argument is, is that I'm making is that uh, uh, it was digitalization that opened then um, the, uh, the last development gap uh, between West and East, because the managers, uh, their main focus was to keep those development gaps closed all the time. Because when you mm. export music, you also have to make sure that the exported music meets the quality standards of the of the of the audience in, in foreign markets. And so they really want. So the, the manager of the music industry really wants to uh, to convert the digital recording, uh, and then in the in the mid nineteen eighties also to uh, to work towards introducing CDs. Uh, but that then is the last gap they can't close because 
in the 70s, they do have the money to, to import a cassette factory. In the 80s, they don't have the money anymore to import all the technology you need for CDs because that is so much more expensive. Uh, and that is basically when they realize in, in terms of like keeping up with the Jonases in the West, um, uh, that's the end of the line for them. Wow. Now, what about musicians uh, in Eastern Bloc countries who are also trying to keep that gap, uh, that sonic gap closed? Um, during that period of delay before they can get the latest uh, electric guitars or synthesizers or different kinds of uh, music-making machinery. What are they doing to try and replicate the sounds that they're receiving from the West? They are the uh, the, the true experimenters in in pop music uh, in in a way because they have to um, they have to be very creative uh, to substitute certain sounds that the instruments that are available from regular stores cannot produce. Um, there, there are a few, a few different ways of how they get access to those sounds. Like some of them are established bands. They are very successful. And um, the, the cultural authorities uh, essentially invite them to be cultural ambassadors. So they send mm. them abroad, usually to West Germany to play there. And since they are playing abroad, they get paid in hard currencies that they bring home or they spend them while they're there uh, on equipment that they then import. So basically the, uh, the, the performers at the very top of the circuit, um, they have, uh, they're the first to get access to, to, those, uh, to those instruments and to those machines that make the latest sounds. Um, however, like the lion's share of artists, they really have to improvise. They have to go to the black market, they have to uh, they have to ask relatives um, uh, in Western countries to send them something, but not everything can be sent, uh, of course. Um, they go to Eastern Europe, like some Eastern European uh, countries have better uh, conditions for musicians. Um, they are more uh, import friendly when it comes to equipment and others build their own instruments. So when I, when I researched that article for uh, the, um, uh, the sonic differences, I talked to contemporary witnesses who, who made the point that you had to be a virtuoso with, uh, with tools, uh, essentially, before you could be a virtuoso with an instrument. Uh, there's, there's one story I found like super fascinating where like, um, uh, I think it was the late 60s, they want to play, uh, uh, they want to cover all the, the, the beat uh, bands from Britain that they hear on the radio and they are like really like into that. And so uh, there are no electric guitars on sale uh, in, that, in that period. So what they do is they, they, they take photos of like catalogs where those musical instruments are on display and they project them on the wall, uh, onto the wall. And then they kind of like cut out uh, um, uh, the, 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 the body from a piece of wood and they reverse engineer the technology of an electric guitar for instance, <laughs> by by using, using magnets from cupboard doors, uh, like the closing mechanisms of cupboard doors uh, to, to make pickups for like, like to, to, to wind wire around and, uh, and use those magnets for that purpose. It's like really fascinating stuff. It's like uh, improvisation on a very high level of sophistication because they work, they play those guitars and, and they, I'm, I'm not entirely sure if they sound like the Western role models, but you can tell it's an electric guitar. Um, so yeah. That's, that's just fascinating. I love that story. Well, how about um, Hagley and its role in your professional development, perhaps especially this NEH fellowship, uh, postdoctoral fellowship that you're um, about to wrap up now? Uh, how has Hagley contributed to your professional development? 
So the Hagley is a wonderful place for anybody who is interested in how business and technology shape, shape society. Uh, in my case, how they shape culture. Um, I uh, have got a lot of um, uh, inspiration of talking to the fellow scholars that are around, like they're coming in and visiting. Uh, some of them have like great tips. They, they, may be, they may be working on totally different topics, but they come across in the archival uh, collections, um, they come across materials that they, that they recommended to me. And uh, like one example, for instance, so I'm interested in, um, and I, like the Hagley is a great place for me to lay foundations for the second project. So basically the first book is, uh, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm writing the manuscript, but the second project is uh, what I focused the archival research on while I was at the Hagley. And one aspect is how capitalism, how, how capitalist development has shaped the popular arts. And uh, so one musicologist came in at the Hagley and, and we had to talk about like what's in those collections. And uh, she pointed out um, the early synthesizers. Um, I, I knew that RCA developed them. I know that the, that the Hagley has the RCA or has significant collections on RCA. Um, so I, I went into the into the archive and I, I, I located the papers of the acoustic engineers who were like uh, who headed essentially the development of the first electronic music synthesizers in the mid fifties uh, that were like uh, I think the the, the, the first major machine was installed at Columbia University in 57. Um, so I've been going through this and it's like absolutely fascinating stuff. It's like the, uh, the, um, the birth hour of electronic music in, in, in many ways. And so somebody like me who's, who's working on like uh, the connections between um, yeah, economic organization and technical development and, and, and the, the shifts in culture, this is like um, priceless stuff. Uh, one other thing I've been, I've been working on, uh, so, the music uh, monopolist in East Germany is essentially not behaving like a communist company. Uh, it's not, and has much to do with the head manager of like 33 years, who is a very interesting character. Who's like a like he's a he's a he's a loyal communist, but he 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 thinks and he acts like a Western captain of industry. He wants to grow. He wants market shares. He wants Western partners who depend on him. And so, I. Uh, I came up with this idea of looking into how how such managers of the crucial industries uh, um, think in an Eastern environment and a Western environment. And the the counterpart that first came to mind was David Sarnoff, uh, the uh, the former president of RCA, uh, a, a visionary businessman, a um, somebody who. Uh, was rubbing shoulders with the highest representatives of the government, tirelessly pushing private uh, uh, public partnerships to win the Cold War. So I've been reading his, uh, his legacy. It's all very carefully compiled um, uh, in order to make a comparison how these managers, what kind of entrepreneurial philo philosophies they form uh, in communist and capitalist environments, and if they're really that different, or if there is a common ground between them, and spoiler alert, yes, there is some common ground between them. And, uh, and so that's, that's two things I've been looking at this year. And I hope that both uh, will go uh, into, uh, into the second project on, uh, on popular arts and capitalism. Well, I can't wait to read the current book and to see your second project develop. It sounds like really just great stuff. Thank you. And Sven, thank you for sharing your work with us. And uh, for the audience, if you would like more Hagley History Hangouts, 
for more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, join us online. You can visit us at hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. Don't be a stranger. <laughs>